Rolling the clock way back to the early 1990s, we find yours truly, Dr. Bruce, living in Prague, the beautiful medieval capital of the Czech lands. Newly released from the gray absurdistan of the Eastern Bloc, life in Prague was both a deep challenge for me and a big part of my awakening. I was sent there by our small California software startup named Elixir to bring to life one of the first software labs in Bohemia. I had spent the previous three years coding 12 hours a day to create one of the first graphical user interface environments on PCs. That means using a mouse and windows for you young whippersnappers. The team of golden-hearted, truly gifted, and seriously Slavic guys we hired to port our code to the new Microsoft Windows platform also worked very hard. From our converted villa in Bila Hora, where in the 17th century the Czechs lost their part of the Thirty Years' War with dire consequences. In my free time, I began to engage the Prague intellectual, artistic, and innovative communities, and before I left Bohemia in 1994, I was interviewed by a documentary film crew led by Jan and Christina Kaplan. Molly, an enthusiastic expatriate journalist on Radio Metropolis, and by Wendy Haller, now Draypack, a British presenter on Radio Prague. Unbeknownst to me, in the summer of 92, Terence McKenna and a whole cadre of visionary adventurers and thinkers arrived in Prague for the International Transpersonal Association Conference. In a now-famous Baroque café exchange between Terence and the great teacher Ramdas, they riff and rap on the subtle and profound differences in their worldviews. This video was released onto the net under the title Prague Gnosis, and is well worth viewing. Certainly, if I had known about this event, I might well have snuck in the back door. I likely brushed past Terence and the others in my usual rounds through the old city. It would have been a brush with my future, as I was to be hooked up with Terence and the gang only five years later. Let's now get on and hear my own version of prognosis, with these three interviews presented back-to-back -back for you here in the zone. In the Kaplan's video documentary, Good Morning Prague, I wax about the magic of the city and our efforts to spark a new form of alchemy in our newly equipped Comenius Computer Graphics Laboratory at Charles University in the very shadow of Prague Castle. In Molly's interview at Radio Metropolis, held deep under the city in the former Communist Party bunker, I depicted a view of a future mobile computing and technomatic lifestyle of the 21st century. About halfway through the interview with Molly, I found myself describing what we now refer to as Google Maps, and even two apps, a software agent called Mod, who would find you the best and closest diner, and another named Eugene, who would do all your banking through voice commands. Later in the interview, I put forth a dire warning about the abuse of privacy and intrusiveness of the coming tsunami of online advertising and the tracking of your every click. The final interview was about the D-Salon, a series of artistic gatherings I sponsored, working with Czech artist Katarzyna Stenslova. We were asked by Wendy at Radio Prague about our efforts to reintroduce private patronage to the arts in the Czech lands. I felt that you, the listeners here in the Levity Zone, 
might be interested in some of my predictions 20 years ago about life in the 21st century. So sink back with me into a time before the web, when email and the information superhighway were dreams, or nightmares, of a near future just about to be. Where Prague's alchemists once searched for the formula that would turn base metals into gold, the ancient Charles University has a computer science laboratory which seeks to turn the new sciences into gold. Its Canadian director, Bruce Damer, sees a direct link between the alchemist's metal and the microchip. Uh, we have a magic formula of 500 intelligent, motivated, hardworking young Czech undergraduates and a great faculty, good training, classical math training, and industries moving into Bohemia. Another interesting thing is the heritage of this city with alchemists in the castle, in those little houses in the castle. The project is called the Elixir Project, and the firm was named that. In a way, we're mixing together some very strange components in the pot here and we'll see what comes out. In this very building, there were Jesuit priests speaking arcane languages and making incantations and creating a mystical world. And this is, in fact, a, like a priesthood here, the computer scientists. And their effect is quite powerful in society, and no one can understand what they say. And they create magic. You see it on television and in videos. In fact, we have a chapel here, which used to have a crucifix on the front wall, and the crucifix is no longer there, but there's a a beam television unit that beams not the holy scriptures but graphics very fantastic computer graphics spinning cubes and balls and faces that are changing and morphing and those kinds of things on that wall and the students are sitting there and being inspired by that so they're being inspired by master alchemists to mix the next magic formula that will spread out across the world i think this is one of the best cities on earth and uh, it's a city at a crossroads. It's a, a fulcrum between east and west. You meet everyone here coming through here from South Asia, from Africa, from Western Europe, from Russia, from the U.S. They're coming through. They're sitting next to the monuments and they're walking across the bridges. And so in a way, this city belongs to the world. So to live here is to belong to the world. So my guest this afternoon is Bruce Daymore. He's an independent computer scientist and self-described technomad, or soon-to-be, and we'll describe and we'll tell what that means in just a moment. He'll give a picture of what scientists are dabbling in, scientists who dabble in the future. And in fact, Bruce, I guess we could include you as one of those scientists dabbling in the future with an experiment that you're just about to undertake when you go back to the U.S. Why don't I have you describe that? It's something that you call a two-year voyage. I've been here in the Czech Republic for three years and set up a software development lab. We've built software that's exported. 
It's and exported to where? To about 100 countries. Uh, it's publishing software used by big companies. It's one of the first exports of software from the Czech Republic. And what is the experiment that you're going to be doing in the United States, which you're returning in two weeks to do this? What I'm doing is trying a new lifestyle, variously called technomadic, i.e. a combination of techno and nomad. And what it involves is the recognition that you can be anywhere. It doesn't actually matter as long as you have an email address, electronic mail address. But many people do have that. You're doing something even more specific. What, what I'm doing is outfitting a mobile laboratory uh, with a satellite dish on the roof and email going into the sky all over the world. And I'm going to combine a holiday and work inside the vehicle. A two-year holiday. Two-year two holiday. And going to see all those people that, you know, you don't have time to go and see, but, but I'll be able to go and sit with them for a week. Okay, let's let's just back up and take a look. At, describe for me what this machine looks like. This Is this a regular mobile home and that you're, you're sticking in all these computers in, into yeah, a... Yeah, that, that's right. It'll be a, a smaller, not a land yacht type, a very large one, but a smaller Class C motorhome, which has workstations of computers stuck on the walls and stuck on the ceiling and a network so the computers can communicate without wires inside and a dish on the roof and... Uh, you know what specifically will be in it? You said satellite dish? Satellite dish, uh, computer screens. Uh, C computer screens literally on the roof. On the roof, on, yeah. the, on the dashboard, on the front and a compact disc having a map of every street in North America which from... Your Cold War dollars were used. Uh, you can get some of it back, not much, but one of the things is there are 24 satellites in orbit put up by the Navy, and they constantly send a signal out. And with a little handheld unit, you can find out where you are at any time, your longitude and latitude within a hundred or a couple hundred feet. And when you put that coordinate constantly beeping in, together with the maps of the whole of North America on a compact disk, on the screen on your dashboard, you can see where you are at all times. There's Instead a little, of a road map, we're talking about right, an electronic map. Right, a little red blip on a side street in Wichita, Kansas. You can suddenly, you know, just open it up and there you are. And this was done by a gentleman at Microsoft. But he told the system with voice commands, uh, which is what I'm going to do. You're going to have a computer that has that responds to voice commands. To voice and all. Say, for instance... Excuse me, how advanced is this? For, for those of us who have nothing more than a tape deck in their car, it's probably quite advanced. But for computer wizards, is this cutting edge or...? Not really. It's not. all sort of available in normal computer marts. Uh, you just have to know how to put it together. For example, I'll, I'll create a personality in the computer called Mod, and Mod will be responsible for getting you places and finding finding diners. Maud as in a woman's name. Yeah. Maud. Maud okay. will find the diners. So if I'm hungry and I'm coming into Kansas City and I say Maud and immediately on the screen a little face appears. <laughs> and I'm a software developer so I can build these things. Can you design the face? Sure. I'm also a cartoonist so I can draw faces. So I'll say, Maud? Yeah, yeah, what is it already? And Maud responds. Maud will respond with a... That was kind of sassy, though. Is Maud going to be sassy like that? Maud will be like a bouffant hairstyle a waitress. And I'll say to her, all right, all right, find me a diner and make it quick. 
and Nod will basically, it's like a little machine, will go down to the disc and pull out a list of restaurants, sort through them, likely which ones are diners, and put them up on the screen, and I'll say to her, okay, I'll just call ahead. You can talk to Nod that casually. You don't have to use formal commands. What happens in that kind of software is you can set it up so that it ignores all all of the junk words and it only responds to, like, uh, dial. I see. Or diner. Or diner, yeah. So you can intersperse all kinds of weird language so it sounds more natural, but as long as it picks up the keywords, I could, for instance, have Maud's eyes open if uh, she hears the word telephone or maybe her ear moves or something. But now you drive to the diner yourself, even though the computer does the thinking for you. The computer will show on the map how to get there and then will ring the phone. The Maud voice will say, are you busy tonight? The computer, yeah. Maud, will call the diner yeah. for you. Although diners, you don't usually need reservations, but perhaps in a restaurant, perhaps. she calls for you yeah. and makes a reservation. Right. The conversation gets complicated. I have to come in. Right. What else can she do? Or what else can a computer that is voice-activated do? Oh, pretty much everything. You could say uh, Eugene is the bank, the guy with the green shade, and he handles all the money. And you Eugene could say, is part of the computer. So you're talking about a computer network that has more than one personality. You, yeah. you would call out the name of Eugene or Maude or whatever, and they would respond to the commands for whatever they were in charge of. Right. So Eugene would be the green machine, and he, he's the money man. So he'll dial up Bank of America, get the numbers uh, for the bank balance if I want to know if I'm running out of money. And Eugene would be able to tell me all kinds of things, like where a teller machine is and all these these crazy things. You can put sensors on just about anything and connect it to computers. So you can put a sensor on your potted plant and you can tell whether it needs watering or not. You can tell or it can tell. Well, it, it has an electric signal going through it and if, as soon as it starts getting too dry, it changes. So a little tiny bit of software is watching this all the time and if the plant needs watering, it'll send you a message. Is that what you're planning to do in this mobile home? Have it so wired that even your plant is wired by your computer and your computer is telling you whether or not the plant needs water or sun? Yeah, it's kind of a ridiculous way to uh, reduce life's complexity by building a very complex system. Reduce its complexity and also maybe its interest. Possibly, although uh, the whole theory on that is it should be a lot of fun, for one, and gives me time to read books and think what computers are coming toward is that with a computer, you now have a secretary because you can type your own letters. You can get your bank and do your brokering. and Through computer. Through computer. You, you don't need a big staff anymore. So really all of this is, is to try to create a surrogate staff to do all those dull, repetitive things and leave you with a lot more time to just sit in a cafe and talk to somebody. Uh, actually, I want to come back to that because we're getting into the notion of community, almost computer community. But back to the mobile home and some of the logistics of it. So you have this mobile home decked out with all this equipment. If I may ask, where is the money coming from for something like this? Are you financing this yourself I'm, or somebody? I'm doing it myself. If you go back and you live somewhere like L.A. and you pay 2000 a year in car insurance, seven or 800 a month for an apartment, you're spending a lot. I mean, you're spending up to 2000 a month. In this kind of life, you can live for well under a thousand a month for everything. Because in a motorhome, utilities are all in there. I mean, you buy two propane tanks a year. It has its own electricity. Um, I have an email for a very low cost. Um, as long as you 
don't eat at a restaurant every day, you can live much cheaper. You make it sound very practical. Well, there's about 3 million Americans, most of them retired with money, who live this way, traveling around in, in a mobile way, in a nomadic way. But they're not as wired as you plan to be. Uh, they're not wired at all. Uh, my uncle uh, refurbishes and rents motorhomes, and he knows a lot. And the most high-tech thing he's got is an electric typewriter in one of them. And he knows all the, the guts and things, black water versus gray water and all these crazy things, but... He's not high-tech at all, so he's really interested to see what I do. Are you doing this to prove something to yourself about alternative lifestyles and saving money, or are you doing it also to prove it to anyone else? Are there any organizations or, or scientists that are, are sort of monitoring your experiment that you plan to report back to? Yes, I have a friend at, who's an assistant professor at Yale, and he's very interesting because he tells me, you know, I sit here at Yale, and it's a great school, but there's so much politics, and I spend so much time struggling to get things worked out. And I'm relieved when I get liberated to go to a conference and sit down and meet someone over coffee. That's where my real productive work happens. And when I first talked to him about this project, he said, Bruce, this will work. Because you'll go to conferences, you'll go lecture at different universities. You will be constantly in productive, creative work, meeting people and whatnot. You won't be locked down into a, a dull day-to-day -day routine. So he's going to watch me because science is changing the United States. The big Cold War funding is disappearing, and a lot of scientists may be on the road anyway. So this is one way to do it. Isn't there such thing as too much of a good thing? I mean, part of going on a, on a road trip, part of the fun, isn't it, is maybe even pulling out the map and getting lost and hunting around and maybe spotting a diner and spontaneously going in and not having everything decided for you by computers. I have a plant at home, and I don't know if I would want a computer to tell me whether or not I should water the plant. Isn't there something we are missing when we deny ourselves some of what you call mundane tasks but that are maybe human tasks? Uh, sometimes you just turn everything off and uh, wander onto a blue highway, you know, a back road. Things like making a, a, a pot of stew are going to be very difficult to do. You, you don't have to do those mundane tasks of cleaning the dishes and whatnot. So you will actually be doing cooking and cleaning? Yeah, okay. yeah. It's hard to imagine something able to do that for you. Is this an ideal life, though, for some people, to have computers monitoring and taking care of all these little... Uh, details and tasks? Is it ideal life for you? It may be. We'll see. It's an experiment. It's a two-year mission to explore weird worlds. It's sort of like a Star Trek thing. I always wanted to travel through the solar system, but I think that Arthur C. Clarke recently was quoted as saying that he shouldn't have named the book 2001. He should have named it 2101 because we're so far off having lunar colonies and whatnot. So Driving a motorhome with all these satellite connections through the Arizona desert at night is probably my closest thing to traveling the solar system. Many people live for years this way. There's a man who also did it on a bicycle, a recumbent bicycle, weighing 600 pounds with all this stuff on it. It's Steve Roberts. No, a motorized bicycle? No, no. no human-powered. He's, wow. he's sort of the pioneer of, of the field. Right. So how new is it what you're doing? What I'm doing that I believe is different is I'm putting all the same equipment in, but my specialty is developing very powerful software objects, and I'm going to build compelling software, new interfaces. Perhaps the other people who have done it have focused on tying the equipment together. I'm going to actually build a whole brain in there. One example of something very new is I have 
10 or 15 ideas a day or somebody says something that's really interesting and goes in one ear and out the other. That's the typical thing. And if you put it in a notebook, you feel better, but it's kind of lost anyway in a notebook. What I'm going to build is a knowledge correlator, or I put these ideas as text, little blocks of text, into a sort of soup, and they're there. And if I say... Well, in, in, to a sort of soup, you mean type them into a computer? Into a computer, and on the screen you see like a, a swarm of moths flying around, and there's all these ideas. You know, visually you'll see things moving all the time. When I put something new in, the swarm will sort of uh, clump around this new thing looking at it. You're speaking figuratively right now, are you? I, I'm, you're losing me a bit on what this is actually going to look like. You're talking about what's happening inside the computer or actually on the screen. On the screen. You will actually see these ideas yeah. floating it's around. Little, they could be colored specks moving around. I see. Uh, kind of like your average video arcade game. But you throw it in there and it might be an idea about uh, bicycling or something like that. And suddenly there's 10 ideas about bicycling in the last three years and they're all finding this bicycling idea. And the next time you ask about bicycling, two of them will be glommed together. They will have sort of mated. So you're talking about a computer that almost does the thinking for you to some extent. It's like helps a, you out. It's a prosthetic. Uh, it's a memory and a synthesis prosthetic where you say, I think I heard from somebody about something and you can't quite remember it and you're waiting for it to pop out and you're sort of like doing things so that you will remember, which is basically not trying to remember go on a walk and it'll likely come to you. But what happens to our memory in the meantime? Doesn't Don't you cross over a line at some point where you're getting into a sort of reliance? I mean, if anyone who has a poor memory is certainly not going to help it. Well, in a way, it's almost as much of a challenge getting information back out because you may not quite know what you're asking for. And what will happen is you'll get something quite new out. And that's not what I wanted. Oh, but that's interesting. Can you give me an example? Has this actually happened to you where you threw some ideas together like this and out came something you hadn't predicted? Yeah, really strange things like ping pong. I met someone who was a, was a world champion in ping pong. And I put in the saying something about when you're playing and you're really hitting it hard and they're standing way back from the table. And he says he's not even conscious at all. He's just hitting the ball like a machine. He doesn't remember the game. So I put that in. I thought that was interesting. And then I had been to see a play, a Tennessee Williams play, and, I, and when I put in the concept of play, I got both the ideas out because play was for playing ping pong and play was for the Tennessee Williams, and they came out stuck together. And it was the weirdest thing. Tennessee Williams and ping pong championship, and it was such a strange combination. And I thought, well, this is maybe sometimes the way the brain works when you're dreaming or, hmm. or when you're mad. It's interesting because you've made a few parallels with computers and humans by saying think and brain and all of this. And now we're getting into a sort of a scary area. And I know we're going to talk more about it after the news in the next half hour about merging computers, electronics and biology. And this is something that you're interested in um, that is on the horizon in terms of the future of computers. Is that right? Yeah, there's a. Uh Sort of one thing I always hold out, and we'll talk about it later. When you tie commercial advertising into this stuff. Let's take a break, and we'll be back with Bruce Daymore to talk more about what's on the horizon as far as the future of computers. You're listening to Metropolis FM. My name is Molly, and of course I'll be here at least till the bottom of the hour with Bruce, but until 10 o'clock with music.
Uh, last month, for those of you who may know, may not know, was a gigantic computer and telecommunications conference and experts from all around the world gathered, gathered here in Prague to discuss the future of the field and, of course, the ever-expanding Internet, for one. Now, as the Czech Republic steadily moves toward the computer literacy of wired countries such as France, the U.S., and you also mentioned Singapore. Yes. Right. As this happens, I thought it would be fun to take a look at where all of this progression is taking us and take a look into the future a bit with Bruce and what we can expect from electronic communications and some of it's in the not-so-distant future. You had a comment about uh, which way Steinway when you were listening to that song. He was talking about pulling his roots up and uh, leaving the town so he doesn't get sort of planted there and hitting the freeway and whatnot. So and that's exactly what you plan to do with your technomatic, right? Technomatic, technomatic lifestyle and the technomobile. That, that's right, yeah. I'll, I'll probably call it the good ship alchemy, <laughs> something like this. I want to go on to more future scenarios, both the positive and the negative one. Uh, one comment, though, uh, that you had made off mic earlier was that Instead of, we were talking about you being surrounded by computers, and you said that instead of a human staff, you would still have a community, it would only be of computers. The idea being tens or thousands of computers surrounding someone, that they're not really lonely, they still have a community, it's just no longer human. Is that right? Well, it's, it's a combination, for, for example. Can we, I guess uh, my question is if you can call that a community and if that is really a s sort of substitution we want. In the deep past, several thousand years ago, uh, farmers who were working the land felt as though the, the very seeds they planted, the, the dogs around them and the plants growing were a community and that they also had a community of gods, of elements, of thunder and rain and whatnot. And that was the human consciousness, the human scope. You're talking about establishing communities with beings other than human. Yeah. And with objects other than human objects. And we, well, in the last millennia or so, we've finally isolated ourselves. You know, we have pets and things like that, but we've also isolated ourselves very much from the natural world. And this kind of a community is sort of twofold in that the people who use the Internet tend to find that in their head is this, this picture of hundreds of people out there that they've never met and they've written letters to and very creative and fluid letters. It's a strange kind of communication. And they're, it's part of their community. And I'm going to supplement that with a lot of little helper things, kind of like a faithful dog that gets the newspaper on Sunday mornings. They're not, I know they're not human. Probably they're less soft and cuddly than a dog getting the paper. But in a way, they'll sort of join, join the roster of those things that surround me. Being very careful to, to get reattached with the real the real world, we don't sit in cafes a lot. But you don't get to the point where you stop desiring human company, though, do you? Uh, when you're surrounded by computers like this? Probably never. Um, it's just a play environment. I think that one of the dangers in the future is that, that people will use it as a supplement. People who sit in front of TV for five hours a day are attempting to cure loneliness. I don't know if that's so much in the future. I think that's going on right now. But here's the... Here's the scary thing. When you couple computer stuff like this with TVs, and when the, the TV has the magazine, the newspaper, the advertising, the electronic mail, the whole works, and, it, and it's part of this information superhighway that has been in the news recently, what you've got is you're sitting there watching TV. The TV's watching you. 
because the TV is trying to figure out who's watching me. You're giving me a future scenario. Future scenario. Something. Let me just ask. This is something that's actually being worked on, or something that is still it's, on the drawing boards and in the imaginations of scientists. It's, it's being built. Okay. And the TV is called the set-top box. It's the big buzzword. Microsoft's involved in one part of the project, but big, big hullabaloo, a lot of hype. You know, everything seems to be hype-driven these days. But the TV watches you. The TV knows you're watching. It's kind of like, like a Nielsen rating system on every set. It knows you're watching, and it knows what type of shows you usually watch. So it's delivering advertising that's meant for you. Now, this happens already when you... that Tailored, mail, tailored advertising. Tailored advertising. When you're sitting in your living room and a whole bunch of letters plop through the box, half of them are junk mail. They're tailored advertising. Those people producing that stuff know exactly what's going on in your household. Now, there's huge databases. Where I they, don't know if they know exactly. They have generalizations, and they can assume perhaps that if you have a couple cars or you have a television, certain things, that you have a certain amount of money and that you're living a certain type of lifestyle. I think you're talking about something else much more specific. They will know what you bought yesterday because if you bought it in a supermarket, it was scanned in. So, for example, here's a good example. You bought cat food. Suddenly they say, well, gee, the person doesn't have a cat, therefore they must be just taking care of a cat. This is out of their norm. Therefore, when you're watching an episode of a program... Excuse me, this is something the television knows? It's what you just gave me? big database somewhere. The database in the television knows that you're babysitting the neighbor's cat. Because you did something weird, which is bought cat food, and you've never done it in your life. So what happens is that cat food advertising starts appearing in the show because they figure there's a chance you're taking care of a cat, therefore you have no brand loyalty, and you're an easy hit. They figure, meaning this computer... Okay, let me follow this. You go to the store, you buy cat food. That is registered and sent back to this big brother... Ooh, I don't want to use that. This big brain, this computer brain, which then uh, registers that you bought this cat food. That information is transferred to your television set. In the form of a, a new ad. For about instance, cat food. About cat food. And what will happen is be, your individual house, Purina will fight for the right... Because you bought Whiskas or something. The, the two giant cat food companies that are in a life and death struggle will try to get that ad to you. Uh, they, they may have to actually buy the rights to send that ad to you. Do I have a choice with this? Uh, something like MTV or the other um, pay-for televisions. Can I opt not to have one of these? And I'm wondering why anybody would want. I don't know if I want tailored advertising. I mean, there are enough ads out there as it is. Is this? I don't know if this is one of your positive scenarios or one oh, of your nightmare scenarios. It's somewhat one of the nightmares. I'm giving you a, a story, a man somewhere in the U.S., I believe it was Illinois, put his name on several hundred mailing lists. And then the U.S. postal truck, which was bringing the one metric ton of post every day from these junk mail had to back up to his house and dump it down a chute and it would burn and burn a water boiler and he he could get all his hot water and so he he was able to to uh, he burnt junk mail junk, to keep himself warm junk mail as he knew that he could get the volumes up high enough and then the uh, basically the environmental protection agency sued him because of the pollution coming out because of all the, mm. the slick papers and he said, all right, I won't do it. Now you solve the problem. You try to stop this. 
And the post office realized that they couldn't stop this. They could cut it down to a level, but they couldn't get him off those mailing lists. It's interesting. Uh, I'm sorry, did you want to say one so, of the things? So he said, listen, you can either build a new landfill and put all my mail in there, or I'll burn it for you in my handy incinerator here. So that... <laughs> You know, it's interesting because we're stepping into an area that I think makes some people shudder when we talk about not being able to stop computers. When you talk about a television who is watching me and when you talk about uh, they know we're we're making the television sound a bit human, um, are we entering into an area, a dangerous area, when we combine technology and biology of not being able to stop, or is this only science fiction, not being able to stop these computers? Well, in fact, a lot of the software that's running the ads to the computer, it's on its own. It's like a living organism growing and living in the networks. Because that cat food sale may have been done without an operator sitting there watching. Because it's just too big. They can't watch every home. So a little piece of software figured it out. And that object, that little software brain, they say they pat it on the head and they say, okay, now you can reproduce a million times and go out and try to find more of these people who are borrowing cats. Or, and then suddenly it, it's populated the whole planet. And it's a new biology, a new life form that we'll have to live with, being born in the competitive environment of selling products. Why do we have to live with it? Don't we have a choice in this? I don't know if we want this sort of um, new life form. It's all tied up in the force of buying and selling, which in the modern world, at least in the Western world, and now in the former Soviet Union, where former Eastern bloc where we are, um, all things like ideology, religion, militarism, all of those things are now kind of irrelevant. The top priority in people's lives, as it has been in the U.S., has been acquiring money and material and consuming. And this is a force that is enormously powerful. I don't know... And almost unstoppable, you're almost, suggesting. Almost unstoppable, and it probably will run down, drain out the last drop of, of, of human compassion before it runs its course but it's only beginning its uh, move Uh, the 21st century cities will look like las vegas where you're walking along the street and you get sucked into caesar's palace casino and i've 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 been there and i know what you're talking about when you you're talking about moving sidewalks all las vegas is incredible and and if you ever have a chance to go you want to go to experiences where you're walking on the sidewalk and you really do get sucked up into caesar's palace because there's another moving sidewalk that takes you, that's what you're saying, that sort of laps you like a tongue inside. Yeah, and you're, that, if you want to see the future, a kind of shuddering view of the future, that's it. Yeah. Now, there will be sort of neo-hippies living on the land also outside of all this, but it's the course we've decided is right. Um, somehow. S- certain people have decided is right. You know, it's it's a really hard sell to resist. Yeah. Let's go back to um, a few, well, we have some time, some more examples. Do you have any others, projects that are being worked on? Well, there's some... Specifically combining, maybe combining um, technology and biology. Some really positive things. Uh, there's an institute at Princeton University that I'm, I'm a member of, and they are dedicated to the concept that human beings should, at some point, start living off the Earth. They do research on other on planets or the moon. You mean moon, asteroid surfaces, or cons- space station construction of space stations. So what they do is privately funded. They've been around for about fifteen years, and they do research in motors which can throw rocks 
through the sound barrier in five seconds. Um, why is that useful? Well, you can stick that on an asteroid and you can pull it into Earth's orbit and use it for mining. So you don't have to haul millions of tons of metal up. You've got it all there. So these people are, are pretty visionary. But one of the Is there any element of biology to this? Or is this just there, computers and technology? And there, there is. Electronics. In, in that the moon, when the pilgrims hit the American shores, they had a great infrastructure. They, have, they had not only water and breathable air, fish and but they had native humans to help them out and the colonies still failed you know the first few colonies failed the moon is much harsher you've got no breathable air no water no infrastructure at all if we're going to ever inhabit the solar system or anything beyond our own biosphere we have to do what nature did which is hundreds of uncounted small objects going there before and sort of making air and tunneling and, and making soil and making it livable. We can't do it with our, our primitive, you know, one system engineering where if one little valve goes, everybody's dead. So making inanimate animate from the earth, making the moon livable. Yeah, you, you would basically, these nano robots, tiny, tiny little robots, drop a pack of them on the moon and the software inside that gives them some kind of smarts and they go out and they chew up the lunar soil and they make copies, and they make billions of them, and then suddenly, you know, they're evolving, and suddenly the moon maybe changes color. I don't know what happens if there's too many of them. You can't keep it going that far, but they can make somewhere like that livable, and I think that's, that's our only hope, uh, the Star Trek vision of the future. That's our only hope. Why? Because I think the Star Trek type of view where you get a big ship together and you go racing off is unrealistic. The, the conditions are just too harsh. You, but do we want to live on on the moon? Why is that our only hope? Are you saying in some ways that's inevitable well, I think that or necessary? I think we're really going to use it up here. If we fall over, we better have our eggs in more than one basket. And that's an important thing. And also when people have traveled outside the earth and they've seen the earth from outside, their perspective really has changed. Maybe a new religion will be born out there that will carry humanity forward when the Earth's become completely bankrupt with commercial advertising, cat food and things like that. There has to be somewhere to go and the room gets too full. You know, I look at you and there's a little, I'm sure there's a look of disbelief on my face, but I'm sure that look has been there for other people in the past when science of the future, ideas of the future had been proposed and yet then they came true. And they usually come true suddenly and much sooner than anyone expects, including the scientists. You know, like uh, Werner von Braun building rockets for Nazi Germany in the war, never dreamed he would build a rocket that would put people on the moon before the end of his life, and he did it. You know, it's very, very sudden, very sudden changes. Or the end of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc just suddenly happened when both sides were preparing for another 40 years of this, and it happened. So it, I think maybe the watchword for these times is things happen sooner than you think. Hmm. We'll have to end there. Thank you very much for being with me tonight. Uh, we should probably, maybe you want to mention where you're going to be, be this evening. This evening I'll be giving my last reading at the Beef Stew at Rados downstairs if anybody would like to have a discussion it's on this. this the Beef Stew reading. Beef Stew reading. At Rados downstairs starting at 7, it goes from 7 to 9. 7 to 9, near right. Ipe Pavlova. And these are stories that you're reading, sort of futuristic stories, aren't they? One of them's 
about Mikhail Gorbachev about the past and the others are futuristic about the coming comet impact with Jupiter, which is in two weeks. Good. So those of you who would like to meet Bruce in person, there's your opportunity. Uh, and Bruce, I want to thank you again. My guest has been Bruce Damore. He's an independent scientist and he's been talking about the future of computers and good luck on your trip to the United States and your technobile. Thank you. Somewhere there's music, it's where you are. Somewhere there's heaven, I'll near how far. But I guess now turn, if you would come to me soon. I'll tell you where I'll survive. Canadian computer technologist Bruce Damer is highly reputed in the Czech Republic for his contribution in building a large software development laboratory. In recent months he has courageously diverged from this field by establishing and funding a season of artistic presentations or D-salons to benefit the Czech artistic community. So far this year five such salons have taken place with many more planned for the autumn. I invited Bruce Damer to the studio and asked him where the initial idea came from. Basically, there were two motivations for me to do this. Uh, the first was that uh, our project really had benefited from this community, benefited from the, the talent that emerged from the Cold War, uh, the hard work that the uh, engineers were doing, uh, and we were we were profiting from this. So it, as good citizens, uh, we decided that or I decided that I would contribute something to the community. And the second thing is that technical people, computer people, the world over sound the same and have the same languages. And as a businessman and a technologist, uh, it's an 18-hour workday sometimes, and you're very, very narrowed, and you become a very narrow human being. Walking in the streets, you don't notice there are trees and beautiful girls and things like this. And this was a way for me to broaden myself and to put some roots down here. Um, the D Salon was conceived with the aim of increasing arts patronage in the Czech Republic. In retrospect, would you say that you've gone anywhere near to achieving this goal? I think we're part way along. Um, we're introducing the concept here again because, of course, for the last 40 years it's been all state-funded. And uh, Europe seems to have, as a whole, lost the idea of individual patronage, you know, from the Medici days in, in Florence and Da Vinci and Michelangelo, which produced such wonderful work the last eight or nine hundred years, it, it was lost. And we felt that Prague was kind of closer to the original old European roots. And uh, we're part way along. Uh, we've had some interest from some bankers and some people in real estate that are looking at putting something back into the community Katarzyna Stenslova has been instrumental in helping you organize these salons. Why did you choose Katarzyna? One day I went to a party at her atelier, her studio, and there were wonderful people there, just a, a large collection, and I knew that she had the, not only the talent and understanding of art herself, but uh, she was very well connected and uh, she really did put it together very well. Okay, so moving to Katagina. Um, from an artistic point of view, can you tell us something about the different people that you invited to present their work at the salons? Uh, because I am artist, it was um, for me a little decision to don't choose only uh, alone the, the other artists. So I did decide to help 
for me with some curator uh, and uh, this uh, lady it's Marta Smolíková uh, choice her popular artists so uh, by this way we chose uh, David Černý Antonín Střížek and Jiří uh, Příhoda and for music uh, we decide to invite uh, swings together with um, with a duo Aleš Kudela and Miloš Vacík, which is part of the group Šumsvistu. You are an artist yourself. Your husband, František Kopp, is a jazz musician. One of your aims concerning um, the salons was to mix the various artistic genres. Do you know of any positive outcomes from doing this? Uh, I am sure that it's uh, positive from the psychological side because I have here a lot of... Um, content people who said to me that they could to open a little their mind to don't be only in some concrete area which is a little orientated at some uh, specialization. But I have here also some speech from, from the artists who said to me that somebody would like to visit them after after presentation or some people who was interested about music and they look for some CD or cassettes. So in this moment, I hope that it can sure help. So what about Bruce Damer, the D Salon's patron? What does he view to be the Salon's greatest achievement? Uh, the biggest success, uh, from my point of view, is showing people, foreigners and Czech people alike, that there is a way to entertain oneself rather than watching TV or going to the movies. And that it used to be done, the, the way people entertain themselves hundred years ago for the previous 20,000 years of human history when we had languages to get together and communicate and meet new people and, and be in a group. And uh, in this century, if we lose, if we really are losing that, the people who come to the salon are actually surprised. Oh, it, uh, not only did I have a good sandwich and a good, it was a good presentation, it's interesting, it opened my mm -hmm. mind, it expanded my mind, but I, I was around people and I, I, I feel good when I, when I go out. And I think the world needs to return to this. Okay, Katarzyna Stenslova, Bruce Damer, thank you very much for coming into the studio. Bruce and Katarzyna are currently forming a Patrons and Friends Committee. Consequently, they are looking for individuals willing to support, financially or professionally, the D-Salon with its forthcoming presentations. If you feel that you have anything to offer, please contact Katarzyna by telephoning Prague 431029. We'll leave you now with a song from one of the Salon's participating artists, namely the music group The Swings. The track is entitled Smack Dab in the Middle. Don't forget to write to us with your ideas. The address to write to is Radio Prague, Prague, postcode 12099, the Czech Republic. So from myself, Wendy Haller, and the rest of our team here in Prague, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this time warp, 20 years back to what I believe are my first recorded talks of any kind. I had been telling my tales to audiences since about 1980, but none were captured on tape as far as I know. And like many nerds, that early phase of life in my teens and 20s were spent dwelling in the virtual worlds of computer code. I felt strongly that in one phase of life, preferably when you are young, you must create things of value to others. 
For me, learning the skill of coding provided personal balance and a lifetime of support and new opportunities. When I got a little older and felt the urge and encouragement by Terence to rap on what I had learned, there was a solid foundation under the story. Work hard to grow cotton for your gin, and some fine yarns you shall later spin. As for what happened after I left Prague, yes, for a time I did live a technomatic lifestyle, although I never got my van equipped quite up to the vision I had in Prague. Of course, others went on to build all this tech, and most of us are now technomads to some degree. The remainder of the 1990s continued the optimistic opening up and wiring of the world, and the gnosis of those times gave us all a fervor for the future. As I walked among the fog-shrouded cathedrals and cobblestone streets of Prague, so did Terence a lane or two over. By 1997, we were destined to meet, each pursuing our vision, me building a cyberpunk dream virtual world of avatars, which is where I finally encountered Terence as he trod his own path toward a technological and later a personal singularity. Until next time, and back to this millennium, this is Dr. Bruce bidding you in check, Nascladano a dobro noc. Goodbye and good night.